Welcome to Startup Stories, where we go behind the scenes of some of the most interesting and innovative tech startups in the world. Each episode will bring you in-depth interviews with entrepreneurs and business leaders, sharing their personal stories on success, failure, and everything in between. So whether you're an entrepreneur yourself or someone that's just generally interested in the world of startups, then Startup Stories is the perfect place for you to gain insight and inspiration into some of the most exciting players in the game. So sit back, relax, and join us on a journey of Startup Stories. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the Startup Stories podcast. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for having me on today. My pleasure. And for those that are listening that don't know who you are, could you give them a brief introduction? Certainly. So my name is Ben Shepard, uh, one of the co-founders at Silta Finance. Uh, I've got a background, well, quite a varied background, more recently in the, in the tech industry. And prior to that, in uh, infrastructure industry, doing things like um, heavy toll roads, uh, railways, airports, and that sort of thing. Started my career in the UK, ended up going to Asia, before then circling back to, to now living in sunny Spain. So that's me in a nutshell, and we, I'm sure we'll expand on that as we go through the pod. Yes, absolutely. I mean, looking at your profile, I was very intrigued to uncover your journey and the, the life that you've lived, literally quite literally all over the world. So looking forward to diving deep in that. To understand you best, I'd like to run it back to your earliest memory, the earliest one you can think of. So take me back to your childhood. Where did you grow up? What was life like for you? Yeah, so I, I grew up in uh, the southwest of England in a little town called Carn, which was famous for um, its sausage factory. I quite like sausages still today, funnily enough. <laughs> so I, I grew up there. It's quite a small town surrounded by places like Bath and Swindon and, and Bristol. So I was, I think I lived in Carn until I was around, I don't know, 12, 13 years and then moved out to the countryside. Earliest memories, one of my earliest memories was being covered in green paint, dressed up like the Incredible Hulk and running around a playground, raging at people for a fancy dress school days. <laughs> one of my earliest memories. <laughs> yeah. Okay, a very interesting story. Why, why do you think in particular you remember that? I don't know. It's probably one of the happier memories of my primary school years. I had, uh, I had quite a challenging period at primary school when I was young. I, uh, I suffered with alopecia, so my hair fell out. I had a nervous disorder at a very young age. Basically, it would cause me to wet myself very randomly because of the nerves. And I did that until probably until I was nine nine maybe ten years old uh, if my mum's listening I'm sure she'll correct the <laughs> what age I did it until. <laughs> but yeah that went on for quite a few years when I was younger because of this nervous disorder and it was really tough on my granddad as well because we had quite a small house and I actually shared a bed with him in this house my mum was in another room and basically it was sort of this this two-bedroom place that we had so every time I peed the bed of course he got soaked as well <laughs> <laughs> but he was, he was very patient with me and he's a fantastic granddad. I, I, I miss him because he's, he's not with us anymore. But yeah, that Hulk thing was probably one of the highlights of my primary school years. And um, the hair did grow back eventually, by the way. But then I, I found out about bleaching when I was 16 years old. And the, the little hair that I had, I bleached because I wanted to look cool. It was the in thing. And then, and then it was gone again by the time I was 17. So... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, hair just wasn't meant for me, I don't think. <laughs> so do you think having that alopecia and the nervous disorder, do you think that really shaped you even to this day? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in those in those early years, it was, oh boy, it was challenging. You know, it, it really held me back in so many things. Just the nervousness would prevent me from being able to perform well at school. It was funny with me. So some people that are nervous, they they kind of avoid wanting to be in the spotlight because they're afraid. With me, it used to make me angry, the fact that I was feeling nervous to the point where I would want to throw myself into the limelight. But then in the process of getting there, the nervousness would like tie my stomach up in knots and and you know i'd always have in the back of my head oh my god am i gonna am i gonna wet myself again like i used to when i was little because i couldn't control it and i never did when i got a bit older but it's always in the back of your mind so whenever it was like my moment to shine i was immediately met with just so much fear 
that the nerves was going to overcome me. And and for many years, I um, I would get very sweaty palms. I get very shaky. I've got Rosina, which your filters reasonably well taking out um, so, but I go red very very easily and, and when I'm up on the stage and when I'm having to perform or when I'm in the spotlight I, I go like a, a beetroot when I lived in Vietnam they used to call me tomato head it was hilarious it's like <laughs> which I, I laugh about now but back then you know it was it was horrific like tomato head oh my god I don't want to go out today but yeah all of that did shape me because I got so frustrated with that holding me back that I wanted to fight against that. I wanted to come overcome that so badly because I hate, I hate the feeling of, of losing, of, of being defeated by something. And I, I just didn't want to be defeated by this. So first job, it was, it was pretty bad. Then I spent a year as a management consultant in London. <laughs> they recognized this problem very early on. So they made me present four times a day. And I did that for a year. Now, after 12 months of <laughs> like deep shock presentations to, to partners that are willing to grill you and, and go in on you, that kind of puts a few layers on you. I hated that job, to be honest. I learned a lot. I've worked with some fantastic people that have been successful, but it, it wasn't for me. And then after I left that job and I kind of felt a little bit more confident about presenting and getting in front of people, I started to to accumulate a number of mentors, which gave me different bits of advice. And, and some of the advice was around how to, how to manage yourself during a presentation. So some of those were like, take your time when you're speaking, have a glass of water. If you get asked a difficult question, take a sip of water, give yourself two, three seconds to think before then responding. And like, there's all these different tactics. Like, oh, this is genius. This is how to deal with it. So all, all the way through my career, it, it has shaped me who I am today. And now I love coming on pods. I love going on stage. I, you know, I have a giggle when I'm up there. I, I had the most amazing opportunity last year where I got invited to Google. So as a tech startup, you get invited to Google. You're like, come on, now we've made it. We're at Google, we're at Palo Alto, we're in their headquarters, yes. So I was like, I am gonna enjoy this. And honestly, it was the most enjoyable panel discussion I've ever had. I was up there, I was cracking jokes. There's this great guy, Adrian Wands. He has the, the, the most incredible flowery socks ever. We were making jokes about that on stage. I'm like, I'm at Google, I'm having fun. You know, this is great. It's like finally the coming together of everything that I've had to work on throughout my 42 years of life, no, 41, 41 years of life to get me to the point where I'm happy doing this. So it, it's definitely shaped me, yeah. And fair play to you though, like with that one year in the sales management job, I think you said. Management. Yes, that's right. To be put up to do pitching four times a day in front of the sales floor or the floor, uh, many people would have left that job just because of the sheer pressure of doing something that they fear the most, like yeah. you in your case. So fair play to you for sticking that out. And that goes back to what you were saying at the beginning, despite your nervous disorder and how bad the alopecia was, you said you never wanted to be defeated. Mm. So clearly your mind was actually stronger than your issues. Yeah, I mean, my, my granddad gave me this fantastic piece of advice when I was little, which is, Ben, you can do anything if you put your mind to it. And so that's just stuck with me my entire life. It's like, if I, if I really engage my brain and I, I focus and I thrust myself in it, I can get past whatever's in front of me. And I, I truly believe that with everything. It might sound arrogant. It's not meant to sound arrogant. It's just what drives me. And so this fear, you know, I, I had to overcome that. And yeah, I mean, in the EC Harris experience, I wasn't the only one having to, to present, you know, multiple times in a day. That was how they trained you up to get you kind of battle ready. And I think one of the first projects I did was uh, for John Lewis Partnership and Waitrose, which involved cutting a number of people to save some costs and you know having to present to senior figures in there whilst going through this this kind of uh, rocky training montage for getting you ready to present to people it was like <laughs> you know in in at the deep end but it got me there and I, I have a lot of respect for the people that helped me do that so yeah yeah it's, it's a fantastic story and there'll be people listening who also have that kind of fear especially 
speaking in front of people i think that's probably the number one fear in the world public speaking mm. so correct me if i'm wrong but because you know i've had those sort of issues before where you know public speaking was the biggest fear i'd ever have i wouldn't say i'm like elite or anything but i'm definitely far better than i used to be and i i put it down to a matter of perception how you perceive in your mind would you say that's the same for you or would you say something different like in terms of what you used to think then going up on stage versus how you think about it now tell me about the differences i think now i have the luxury of being more experienced so being more rounded and and having more experience there's more topics that just generally you you understand and you know more about so when you're up on the stage and you get asked questions because of that experience i feel like i'm in a in a better position to answer questions whereas when i was younger yeah i didn't have the experience and and so you're kind of winging it a bit more. So that that was one thing that helped. But then also realizing that when you're up on the stage, everyone's there just doing their best. You know, they're, they're just trying to do their best. No one's going to attack you. You know, if, if they do well, they're an asshole. But in general, no one's going to attack you. You know, you go up there, you do your thing, you do your best. And that's all you can do at the end of the day. And if someone doesn't agree with what you've said, well, that's fine. Not everyone does agree with everything you say. My wife certainly doesn't. So, <laughs> And I love her to this. So <laughs> that's just life. Um, but yeah, the preparation's important. I used to over-prepare. So I would take weeks to prepare before and I would try to learn a script off the top of my head. As someone who's dyslexic, I find that trying to memorize scripts exactly is quite a difficult thing for me because reading in general has got its issues and then writing in general has got its issues. So you know, anything around that is a little bit problematic for me. I'm not the worst dyslexic, but I've certainly got a reasonable level of it. What I found did work for me is if I need to present, I try to figure out what it is I'm going to say in three or four different ways. And actually what that does is it means depending on how you're asked the question, you've got three or four different ways that you're going to reply to it as opposed to the one way that you've learned off the crib sheet. And that's the only way that you can present. Now, when I do it that way, that gives me even more confidence because I'm like, I've got three, four ways I'm going to answer whatever question you throw at me. So unless you ask me a question that wasn't on the sheet, no. then I'm well covered. Otherwise, it comes down to experience. Funnily enough, the presentation at Google, the first question the moderator asked wasn't on the sheet. And I sat next to him and I was like, you got me at Google. We've been given questions. The first question you asked me isn't on the sheet. Can I have the answer? So that was like the first, first bit of banter that I got to have on stage. And that, that set the audience yeah. off. We had a great time from there it's like <laughs> when not to surprise the panel <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but you made a funny situation out of a potentially awkward yeah. situation which is good and yeah. uh, you must have gone through many pints of water as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah i did have a few yeah <laughs> uh okay brilliant so all right talk to me then about you know your adventurous career when did you start branching out of uh, the uk let's say where was the first stop yeah so i started working for a company called atkins in birmingham it wasn't the best fit for me i was in a civil engineering company they wanted a civil engineer i had a business management background i thought maybe working as a project manager in the organization would be a good fit for me but it never quite felt right and then this juggernaut of a man came into the atkins team that i was in it was about six foot six probably 22 stone of ex police officer super heavyweight boxer and rugby player for second team at bath so a mountain of a man Jesus. and he also wasn't a civil engineer he had a different background and we immediately hit it off because we both played rugby although he played a lot better than me um and he uh, he somehow got me onto this job which was a project we were doing in the Netherlands with uh, the government called uh, Rijkswaterstaat, which was sharing best practices between the UK and the Netherlands. So my, my first leap out of the UK was to go to the Netherlands, where I was working there for three years, flying in and out on the red eye on a Monday morning and late back on, on the latest flight back on a Friday, working with the Dutch government. And that was an amazing experience that told me, I don't want to work in the UK. I want to see the rest of the world with my job. I want to be able to say when I hit 40 years old that I've worked all around the world, that I've done lots of different things. So that kind of 
gave me the urge to go and look for other things. So that year in management consulting was was a step in that direction. The first gig that I did for them was in Dubai for six weeks. Did that for about, well, I worked as a management consultant for about a year. Didn't really like it. I didn't feel that the amount of time we were given based on the advice that we needed to give was going to sort of deliver the right results for clients, particularly when you're sacking a lot of people. So it just didn't sit, sit well with me. So then I went back into the infrastructure engineering company, got into transaction advice for infrastructure projects. And while I was doing that, one of my best friends said, uh, do you want to do like a, an adventure challenge? I was like, what, what do you mean? He's like, like, I don't know, climb Everest or cross the North Pole or do something like that. I was like, mate, <laughs> I'm not that fit. And he was like, well, we could work towards something like that. I was like, okay, what do you want to do? Anyway, we, we checked this website, Global Adventure Challenges, and we found that there was this charity bike ride from Ho Chi Minh City to Phnom Penh, so Vietnam to Cambodia. I think it was like 500 kilometers or was it miles anyway 500 one of those two over five days uh, and you're literally driving through the middle of nowhere to get from one place to the other and i was like this looks cool so we signed up to it we got out there i cycled through vietnam cycled through cambodia i fell in love with southeast asia i mean i i was like, i have to be here like if there's somewhere in the world that I can add value with the knowledge that I've already gleaned from working infrastructure is here because we <laughs> we saw some amazing things like at one point we were cycling and the rain was coming down so heavy that the water was almost above the top of my tire it was so deep wow. so the roads entirely flooded and there's this guy coming the other way on his moped and he just suddenly disappeared and I was like where's he gone like he just went under the water and then you see this red hat pop up out of nowhere. He's fallen down a drain, like it was an open drain. And he's gone. No way. So we're, we're helping him out the drain. And I'm like, wow, okay. With my background, this is clearly somewhere that I can add value to. Like I can help them build better infrastructure. So I, um, I got back to the UK. I said to my, my boss, Adrian Baxter, Adrian, I want to move to Vietnam. I've seen that the company has an office in Hanoi. Can I go? And he was like, why do you want to go there? And anyway, I explained it. He was like, look, Ben, if you want to go to, to Vietnam, you're going to have to win a project there because we don't have enough projects in Vietnam to afford for you to go there. So I was like, all right, I'll, I'll find a project. So this, this kind of mindset that my granddad gave me of you can do anything you put your mind to, I found a project with World Bank that was to conduct a feasibility study for a 220-kilometer expressway from Ningbing to Bayvot in Vietnam. And uh, we had to put together this bid that took three months. There was, I guess there's a team of five or six of us working on it, putting this thing together, lots of late nights working on it. And it was one of the first bids I ever did. So I'd mainly been in project management up until that point. So we put this bid in. And we won. And I was like, wow, <laughs> great, we won. And Adrian was like, this is great, fantastic. I was like, so I can go to Vietnam? He was like, no, you're great at sales. You're staying here. I was like, no, hang on. <laughs> that wasn't what we agreed. And he was like, Ben, you've proven yourself. We need to get you more in this business development team. I was like, okay, this isn't what we agreed to. But I liked Adrian a lot. I still do today. And my other boss as well, Peter McDermott. So Peter got me in a nice salesy job. Anyway, in parallel, the project in Vietnam was having a few issues. And it resulted in the, in the client saying, we want the person that helped write the bid here on the ground working with the team. So I was like, that'd be me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so with that, there was an agreement that I could move to Southeast Asia. I, I thought I was moving to Vietnam. About a week before I was due to go, I was told I was moving to the Philippines because we had a bigger office there. Now, my, in my naivety, <laughs> I didn't know where the Philippines was. So I've got this map out. I'm like, Where's the Philippines? Like, looking down in South America, thinking it must be down this side. No, <laughs> completely wrong side of the planet. It's like two hours from, from Vietnam on the plane. So I found this place. Like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, it's just across the pond. That'd be fine. 
get out there, meet my boss, Mickey Axley, great guy again. How Crow, that company is full of great people. I love working for them. And uh, he's like, yeah, you'll be based here. Go to Vietnam next week, stay for two weeks, sort out the issues with the client and then come back. So I was like, what should I do with all my stuff? Because I had all my worldly belongings. I've just arrived in the Philippines from the UK. And they're all in Mick's office. He's like, just leave it here, Ben. I'm like, are you sure? It's like, yeah, it's two weeks. It's fine. I left it in the office. I fly to Vietnam. A year later, I come back to the Philippines. <laughs> because there's so many issues that we needed to fix. And I've got another wardrobe by then. It was like, you know, just did, never got the chance to come back. Mix put my stuff in the back room or something, I think. So, so that was how I got out to, to Southeast Asia. And I spent two years in Vietnam working and then five years in the Philippines. And those, that time in Vietnam was incredible. I learned a hell of a lot about myself, about Vietnam and about how to operate in Vietnam. And then move into the Philippines learned that you act and operate completely differently to how you would in Vietnam. Very different business culture. Love the Philippines. Uh, met my wife, launched my first startup from, from Southeast Asia. And, and that's what really got me out there. And, and from there, the travel continued, ended up going to Finland for a stint and did four years there and, and now Spain. So hopefully staying in Spain, not moving again. I'm, I'm a bit tired of moving around now, but you never know. So... <laughs> let's see yeah yeah especially with your mindset <laughs> there'll probably be another one in a few years time probably yeah three four years <laughs> <laughs> so have you got a favorite place or favorite country yeah i mean i've only been here a year but i would say spain barcelona feels like the coming together of many different experiences and cultures that i'm really enjoying i loved the living in the philippines i loved that culture I thought I'd never leave. I mean, I remember at one point I had my, my second startup, Bold Native Advisors, which was a consulting firm. Uh, we had a project down in General Santos, which is uh, Mindanao, which Westerners would say, oh, is that the pirate area? And it's kind of, kind of the, the riskier area. I never had any problems there. People were lovely to me and I spent lots of time at, at the fishing port and never had any problems. But, like, there's one memory which I'm sat under a nipper hut I've got my laptop out. I'm working on a project. I've got my feet in the sand and I'm looking around. There's palm trees everywhere, drinking a San Miguel beer. And I'm like, this is a pretty good life. You know, I'm like 31, 32 years old. This is, this is all right. I quite like it. <laughs> like I could, I could easily stay here, but things happen. You know, companies change. You go through different evolutions and stuff. And I ended up in Spain. And honestly, now, I don't see myself live in Spain. Like Finland was great because for raising a family, I don't think there's anywhere safer in the world. It is one of the safest countries I've ever lived in. It's also probably one of the more boring places that I've lived and my Finnish friends would agree with that. So I don't think I'm offending any Finns by saying that. <laughs> but it's very quiet. You know, you've got to basically be just willing to go out into the forest and... <laughs> <laughs> and that's life. Whereas I'm more of a city guy. I like to be in the hustle and bustle. Yeah. But I love Finland for those reasons. Philippines, fantastic. The, I loved the weather, the people. People, Filipinos are the friendliest people on the planet. I, I love working with Filipinos. And there's so much talent there as well. Like loads of talent. Of all of them, probably Vietnam was the, I, the one I enjoyed the least for living and working because it's in such a early development phase still that stuff's just super erratic and it's very hard to just do simple things. Like walking down the street is difficult in parts of Vietnam because there's no pavement, there's motorbikes going left, right and center. You know, buying food that's clean from the supermarkets can be difficult in certain areas as well. You know, you've got to wash all your veg and stuff because otherwise you're definitely going to get an upset stomach. So it was, a, it was a more difficult place to live. But at the same time, I loved it because it was just so different. That first day when I set foot there, I was on my own and I was just like, this is madness. It's brilliant. <laughs> Let's just like figure out how to live in this chaos. But yeah, they've all had their own pros and cons, I guess. Yeah, yeah what a story. And uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit, I mean, I don't know how different or how similar. I've not been to Vietnam or the Philippines, but I've been to, to Bali, Indonesia. 
yeah. um, Lombok, stuff like that. And that had a similar vibe in terms of like the, one of the nicest people, especially in Bali that we've ever met. But um, also some of the infrastructure is just obviously a bit chaotic. Yeah. Uh, I've never seen traffic like it. And the way yeah. people just overtake each other on the side of a mountain and stuff like that was crazy. And then where you are now, Barcelona, as I said to you before, it's my favorite city in the entire world. There's yeah. just something special about Barcelona. Every time I visit, having the hustle and bustle, the city, the beautiful culture, but also to have the sea and you're not too far from the mountains up top and Andorra away and stuff like that as well. Yeah. And it's fantastic business culture, fantastic for networking. Like the speed that my network is growing in Barcelona is incredible mm -hmm. compared to other countries. It's just, it's fantastic. The, the Spanish are wonderful to, to work with. But then you've got so many other people and cultures here as well. And there's just a general a general good vibe that runs through the city. Like even when you're having a bad day, you know, you take take my dog out for a walk, go and have a little bit of tapas, have a nice glass of vino blanco, sit there in the sun. And there's just that feeling that just brings that positivity back around. Whereas when I was in Finland and it was the depths of winter and it's minus 20 outside and there's only been one hour of daylight, you're kind of like, yeah, I've had a bad day and this is not helping. <laughs> so I, I get very confused by this happiest country in the world statistic that keeps coming about. And so do all the Finns that I know. So just to completely debunk that stat, I don't know who's <laughs> no Finn that I know agrees with it. <laughs> like, go there in winter and then, and then tell us we're happy. So. <laughs> Yeah, they, they must have done that study just in one season in the summertime or something. Yeah. <laughs> like June. Uh, Is everyone happy? Yes, we've just come out of a thought. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I definitely have to agree with you about Barcelona, though, the, the, the positivity you feel as soon as you get there or at any time of the day. It's just the culture, the late night evenings, everybody else, everybody's out every night of the week, just socializing yeah. with their friends. Great. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. So tell me about Silter Finance then. Like when did this business idea come about and, you know, where were you and why did you decide to turn it into a reality? Yeah. So like many founders, at some point you have that epiphany moment and you're like, oh, this is what I need to do. <laughs> so that happened for me at like 6.30 in the morning on a cold snowy day in Finland drinking a coffee on my way into work and I was reading some news about decentralized finance and there was a protocol called Aave that had six billion US of uh, TVL on their protocol and I was I was like that's that's a lot of money in fact you could do a lot with that yeah six billion I'm sure it was and I was like you could build infrastructure hmm that's interesting and then I started thinking back to the earlier parts of my career where myself and my co-founder today, Stanley Boots, and some of my other former colleagues, uh, James Cook and others, where we've been talking about how it's so difficult for small, sustainable infrastructure projects to get financed. It's just ridiculous that you can easily get solar farms up and running because of things like due diligence getting in the way and due diligence taking more than a year and the cost of doing diligence activities running into the millions and how can we ever meet climate targets if we can't even assess a project quickly to decide whether it's good or not and then start building it like there's no way assessing a deal should take a year when we have very quite clearly global warming going on around us. I mean, just look at the news. I mean, it's scary. So we can't spend a year thinking about whether a deal is good or not. We have to do that more efficiently. So it's like this coming together of of stuff, like my Rain Man moment. I guess where I'm like, oh, it's all <laughs> it's all coming together. We need to we need to solve the issues around diligence, and then we need to tap the liquidity not just in traditional finance, but also decentralized finance, because at that point in time, there was money in decentralized finance. We need to use all that to build a better planet. This is where this idea for Silta came about, which is the Finnish word for bridge. And we sort of see ourselves as the bridge connecting infrastructure developers with finance by helping them to complete that diligence process more effectively. 
and AI plays a key role in that. So we, we have this 360 data point uh, proprietary toolkit that we're integrating AI into that basically allows us to assess a project in record speed. So we can, we can go through the different parts of a project from the construction, the operations, the transaction structure, everything. We can take a data room, connect into it and start assessing documents and, and spurt out a score at the end of it and produce a diligence report and sort of present this to different financial institutions. And yeah, we're still in a development phase. We've done some pilots. It's still early doors. There's still a lot of work to be done. But ultimately, with this solution, we will be able to help get more infrastructure projects, get through that DD process and hopefully get financed, which is ultimately going to help you know, help the world hit these climate targets or more likely to hit some of these climate targets. So, so this was my epiphany moment. And it kind of, you know, felt like the coming together of, of everything across my career, the early days in infrastructure, the more recent days in tech, and then having the opportunity to bring people from different parts of my career together to work together again on Silter and, and build this solution. Wonderful. Sounds really, really interesting. And as you say, it's a coming together of all of your career paths that have led you to this and probably give you a huge, undeniable stack of confidence within this business. So you've been going two years now, is that right? Almost? Yeah, I think we incorporated two years ago. And then obviously there was there was the ideation part a bit before that. So we're sort of between a pre-seed seed stage um, it took quite a while to build the the diligence toolkit this proprietary model that we've now got but we're now doing pilots and we're we're testing it in different ways and that's that's super exciting so we've done it on some solar projects we've almost completed a super drone highway project there's an e-scooter project we're, we're currently discussing with a new partner at the moment, Pisces. And yeah, there's there's a lot more in the pipeline. So it's still going to take a little bit of time to complete the build out of the project. But at least the early signs are that what we've developed does shave a significant amount of time off of diligence and ultimately can make that whole process a, a lot swifter. What has been the most challenging thing about your journey so far with Silter? Fundraising. The entire time <laughs> that Silter's been going, like the amount of funding going into tech has just been on a decline. So it's just been an uphill battle. Like the, I think the last ticket we got in, I, I said to a couple of the shareholders, this might be my greatest ever achievement in this market <laughs> because it's been such a difficult market. So yeah, the fundraising part of it has just been hellishly difficult. And it, you know, it's not just our company, all, all companies have suffered. We were going through COVID when the initial discussions of Silta were going on. Now we're in, you know, a significant sort of market downturn generally. And you know, there's a lot of people being laid off. So I'm, I'm very thankful for the position that we are in, that we're, that we're still going, that we've still got a project, we've still got a team. But the fundraising part is hard. And VCs are more diligent than ever in checking projects, which is good for the Web3 industry because there's been a lot of crap in there that just needed to fall out the bottom and disappear because it's not been good for, for the Web3 industry. We're kind of between web two and web three. We, we obviously have AI in our solution, but we're more a web two solution at the moment, but we have a token play that we are exploring as well. And we're sort of waiting for the regulatory environment to calm down a bit in the US before we can progress that, that part of the project as well. But yeah, between the fundraising, the regulatory environment and you know just macroeconomic climate, it's been, it's been challenging from that perspective. And Silter, it's not a you know it's not a paperclip. It's a very complicated thing that we're designing mm -hmm. and building. So the amount of you know brain power that you need around that smart brains, way smarter than mine, you know finding those brains and and getting them on the team and getting them to input into it. Yeah, that that's fun. It's also hard. It's sort of a lot of lot of discussions and trying to figure stuff out. But what a journey! I mean. Yeah, so much fun. I love it. And, you know, the core team that I've got now, I love working with uh, their best friends as well. You know, we're all friends in the team and, and like hanging out. So, yeah, I'm enjoying the ride still. 
Yeah, and it's wonderful to hear. And when you talk about the hardest challenge, you know, getting the funding, when I've spoke to other guests, they say one of the highlights or the best things was getting the funding. So there's a, it goes with the old age old saying that nothing worth having comes easy. Yeah. So hopefully you do get it and it will be the highlight because it was just so difficult to get and you'll appreciate it so much more. So yeah, uh, yeah hopefully, that, hopefully that does happen for you. That'll be really good. <laughs> yeah, get, getting it um, is always nice. It's the lead up to yeah, getting it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. You've got to keep no- knocking on those doors a, a million times over, haven't you, really? Yeah, and it's also, you know, it's also partly ad- around refining your product market fit. So I, I mentor a number of projects. And I think a mistake that many founders make is when they have the initial idea and they map out what they're going to do, they think that's that's it that's what we're going to do now but it rarely is like you pivot so many times as a startup founder before you find that final product market fit and we have in silta we've tweaked the the project in several different directions ultimately still trying to do the same thing which is diligence on on infrastructure but how we get there has been has been tweaked multiple times and i think founders that that recognize that early on good for them because it's it's easier on them mentally when you get wedded to one way of doing it and you think that is it and then you have to change that's when it's super stressful and then with that the go to market strategies you know they they change as well depending on you know what your product is and how you found that fit and and what's the right way to get that those customers in so it's all part of the journey it's a constant learning process i've had four startups one successful exit one died a horrible death and the other one's getting acquired at the moment and then there's silta which you know is going is going okay so you you go through these experiences and it teaches you lots of things but you never stop learning as a founder it's just constant and that that's part of the fun of it absolutely yeah you're so right i feel like that's the the best part of being a founder as you say and it's the same attitude anyone should have even if they're not a founder you should never stop learning i'd say i'm sure you probably say the same thing you learn far more in these jobs as founders or uh, that you've you've ever done when you was at school in comparison that's what i found anyway the real world real world situation yeah yeah i mean it's it's interesting that so harry my my seven-year-old son he's on summer holidays at the moment i love the school he's at fantastic school love the teachers there but it it did dawn on me you know when i was at school no one really told me how all the stuff that i'm learning learning comes together so all these different subjects on there, how do they all come together? How do I utilize all of this? What's the way for me to take this forward? And I always knew I wanted to be in business, but I didn't quite know how. I always wanted to do business somehow. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to teach Harry this summer how to be an entrepreneur. So I'm taking him through an accelerator that we've designed for him. He's seven years old, but it it was largely his idea. We were walking the dog and he was like, dad, I want to build a cinema. I was like, what? So I want to build a cinema that's powered by robots. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, why do you want to do that? So, like, well, if I go to the cinema, I don't want to have to get out my seat to go and get more popcorn. I want a robot arm to bring me popcorn. And I want somewhere for our dog to go, like a dog crash or something like that. And I was like, okay. He's like, can we make this into a business like the businesses you and mummy have got? So I was like, we can do an accelerator. So we've started to work through this 15-week accelerator where every week he's basically brainstorming in a Miro board the different parts of his company. And we're going to build a little website in Wix probably or WordPress or something like that where he's going to try and showcase it and then we'll we'll show his teacher when we get back to school but he's already thinking about how do I make money when I'm older how do I make a business like mummy and daddy and and this kind of starts to give some of those tools even at a young age to be thinking well this is why I need math now because actually I can't have a million people in my cinema because if I've got a million people it's going to cost too much to build so it's trying to you know, just make it fun bringing those those ideas in. And it is fun. The cinema's called Chicken. I don't know why, but that's what he's called it. <laughs> still a seven-year-old, you know. There's still, still, still a lot of fun around it. I think that's absolutely brilliant, though. And the fact that it wasn't forced, you said he, he is his idea and he brought it up. 
but you took the initiative to uh, you know, ha have a little fun with it, uh, which is good. But also it just shows how much our children, you know, watch everything we do. The fact that he observed, as he said, you and mummy uh, with, with your businesses and, you know, he clearly wants to be like you, which is uh, really wholesome. I really like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. So tell me about Silter's, you know, sh should you get your finance? Tell me about Silter's long-term goals and ambitions then. How far do you want to take it? Yeah, so Silter's kind of got two components to it. So one component is the AI tool, which does the diligence, but also preparation of infrastructure projects. And the other side of it that we're exploring is, um, is the possibility of having a, a crowdfunding marketplace. So that would potentially be some sort of tokenized crowdfunding marketplace. It's something we're still kicking around internally. And a lot of that will come down to the regulatory environment and how that changes over the over the coming months and year based on what's coming out of the US. So the primary focus for the moment is the AI tool. And with that, we are having discussions with multilateral development banks. And there's some reasonably progressed discussions happening there. And also with some other banks in Southeast Asia that are keen to start piloting with the tool. And ultimately, we want to offer this as a the tool, at least as a SaaS type solution that can be integrated into into different financial institutions and they can be using that for their diligence activities and other sorts of bankability assessments and in doing so that's going to help them streamline the effort the cost and time it takes to assess deals it's going to give them a greater number of opportunities to look at it's hopefully going to result in a lot more sustainable infrastructure projects getting financed as well which is ultimately what we would like to see happen you know we want to see everyone have access to renewable energy we want to see people have access to clean water we want to see these infrastructure projects get off the ground and if our tool can play a key role in helping you know these emerging markets get there fantastic and in the more mature markets as well you know there's so much need for infrastructure still there as well and infrastructure gets old it needs to be replaced and mm -hmm. you know you see you see examples of that all, all over the place so this is what we're working towards and the signs are good so far you know we're, we're still we're still going there's the fundraising is not that bad but you know it, every, every bit helps and we're still going and what what is nice to see now is that those larger target clients that we're speaking to are very receptive to what we're saying so we're, we're clearly touching on things that are now relevant to them. Perhaps this is the moment where we found the product market fit and this is the final iteration of the, of the strategy. Don't know, but we're, I think we're, we're pretty close now. So Good, good. Hopefully, fingers crossed for you. And with regards to yourself then, um, you know, you've had four startups now, including Siltar. You've been all around the world. What motivates you? What's your why? Why do you keep doing this? I'm passionate about business, to be honest. I love learning about business. You know, one of my favorite books is um, Bob Iger's Ride of the Lifetime. Uh, he was the Disney CEO and chairman. Um, and I, I, I also love reading books about Wall Street. I mean, I'm, I'm just passionate about business. I did business at, at school as a GCSE. I did business uh, GNVQ when I was um, at A-level stage, and then I did a business management degree. So I've always been passionate about business. And I think that's a key driver for me. Like, it's fun. It's just fun to learn about. It's fun to advise on. I get a huge kick out of mentoring people. So there's a few projects I'm mentoring at the moment, not just in tech. Uh, so there's a hydroponics project that I'm mentoring. There's an F&B project I'm mentoring. There's a couple that are in the tech space. And I love helping other startups, new founders with their projects as well and, and trying to help them kind of dodge some of the bullets that come their way as a new founder, you know, because there, there is the side of it where people try to take advantage, you know, they try to manipulate cap tables, they try to, you know, pull the rug over founders' eyes because the founders are typically just passionate about what they're building and they don't necessarily look at the outcome for them. They don't simulate the cap table and what it might look like at a series A exit. They're not thinking about these things. So I try to I try to arm my my mentees with the tools and the knowledge they need so that once they have worked their ass off 
for five to 10 years and they're ready to exit, there's something left it at the end of it that's worth exiting for. So yeah, the mentoring side of it, I'm super passionate about as well. And yeah, it's kind of therapeutic for me, to be honest, the mentoring side of it. Once you've done a, a full hard day's work in Silter as your own startup to then speak to other mentees and hear about their issues. On one hand, it's like, yeah, I get it. Yeah, been through that. I feel you. Um, but then to help them and at the end of that call for them to say, thanks, Ben, that was that was really helpful. Sometimes that little pat on the back is all you need to make you make you think that wasn't such a bad day, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, I guess I guess it's a combination of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I think as humans, we get more satisfaction out of helping others just generally it's like when it's like when they say someone's uh, really wealthy they don't get no satisfaction out of buying themselves stuff but when they buy stuff for others mm. that they can't perhaps give back so uh, yeah. i totally resonate with that all right so last question then as a, a mentor let's say you've got someone that's got a fantastic idea and they've got it all drawn out and uh, you know ready to turn that theory into some action but they just don't have the the confidence there's they've got that huge risk adverse attitude really scared about doing it what do you say to them uh we all have to jump off the cliff at some point and you know it's part of the ride the first time that i jumped off the cliff with my first startup i had a co-founder with me so i wasn't on my own and that helped and i had a little bit of money in the bank there was sort of three i think there was three months runway um in in my own bank and then uh it was a case of going out there and getting stuck in and, and enjoying the ride, like not taking it too seriously, but taking it serious enough that, you know, you want to make a success of it. And yeah, just enjoy it, really. So you might mess up, you might make mistakes. Good. Everyone does. No one does it right the first time. And that's just part of the experience. So be brave, have the courage, jump off the cliff and, and give it a go. But in doing so, try to surround yourself with people that genuinely care about you and your project. Not people that appear because you've got a good idea and then they're asking for a chunk of your cap tab and they're like, yeah, I'm going to help you with this and blah, blah, blah. There's those people and then there's the people that genuinely care. And it's very important you weed out the ones that genuinely care and are going to help you because they're the ones that will stand by you when times get tough. Not the one that came along and said they'd be an advisor and they took a lump of your cap table and then things got tough and they disappeared and worked on another project. That's not what you need. You need good, solid people behind you. So, and they'll be out there. I'm sure every, everyone's got those sorts of people around them. You just got to dig deep enough, but yeah, have the courage, jump off the cliff, enjoy it. And if it doesn't work, do something else do another one because with each startup you learn a little bit more <laughs> even though my first one was a success my second one was a painful horrible death it was for reasons outside of my control but i learned a lot from that as well i should have done a stronger assessment of the political landscape in the philippines and and understood more about what might change with a new government come in and how that might impact on my company i didn't do that deeply enough on the second mm. startup and had i have done I probably would have said this is not the best environment to kick my <laughs> my second startup off in. Uh, but you, you, yeah, yeah, you live and you learn. Whatever happens when you do this, you're adding an incredible piece of experience to your CV. You know, forget MBA, forget MBAs. If you've been an entrepreneur and you've done it for a year or a year and a half or two years and you've come out of it and failed, you have learned a hell of a lot, and it's practical experience that you can put into something something else that some company will find valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've always been a big, big believer of you learn nothing from your successes and everything from your failures. Mm. Because if everything's going right, you've not really got anything else to learn because you're just going off default. Uh, and yeah. then all of a sudden when everything fails, that's when you quickly think, right, what needs to change? What do we need to take away? What do we need to add? What do we need to change completely? Yeah, there's certainly elements of that are true in, in that, that old adage, isn't there? You can learn from successes as well, and you probably want to do more of that. But certainly where you've gone wrong, that's where if you really take the time to analyze it and you're not surrounded by yes people, i.e. people that are willing to speak up and say, hey, Ben, I think you, um, I think you could have done better there because this is what actually went wrong and you didn't see it at the time because you were being too stubborn. And then you, 
you know, you, you, you're willing to take that moment, take a step back and go, yeah, you're right, actually. I did. <laughs> and if you can really, you know, look inside yourself and learn from it, then that's an incredible experience. But you have to also be ready to, to let down your guard and, and listen and learn. And that can be difficult as a founder. You know, as soon as you become that founder CEO, in many people's heads, they immediately think they have to have the answer to everything because you're the CEO now. Well, yeah. yesterday you weren't a CEO. Today you are a CEO. You still know the same amount as what you knew yesterday. So that's what you've got to keep in your head. And you've got to learn as you go. And you've got to, you've got to be ready to, to take advice and listen to the advice. And I haven't always been the best at that. You know, I'm, I'm now quite confident in my own abilities. And at times we'll go at things like a bullet a gate when actually I should have taken half a step back and said, oh, actually... You know, maybe maybe I need more advice on this. And other times it's worked out well for me. That That's the game. But um, yeah, that that's probably my main advice to any new founder or CEO. Don't think just because on Monday you weren't a founder and Tuesday you are a founder, all of a sudden you know everything. You don't. You, you need to get advice. You need to listen to others. You need to you need to take your time with this. So. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I myself have mentors because I don't know everything. And I also say to my employees, you know, I, I repeatedly say this to them. I say, look, I don't know everything. So if you have ideas that have come to your mind that perhaps I haven't mentioned, then do not be afraid to share them because if they make sense and it's a good idea, we'll always give it a try. And yeah. if it works, we'll stick with it. And I've kept that mentality throughout the entire team. And it really has come back to pay me in dividends. We've uh, implemented so many new ideas that came from employees within the team that I didn't think of. And if I didn't yeah. let them know that, they would have been too scared to speak out and say anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's good to have smart people around you. For sure. For sure. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining me on the Style Storage podcast. Absolute pleasure. I hope you get your funding. I'll keep following Silter from afar and keep talking with you. Really enjoyed this podcast with you. My pleasure. Thanks, mate. Cheers. No worries. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Startup Stories. I hope you enjoyed hearing from our guests and learning more about their journey in the startup world. I'll be back soon with another exciting episode featuring a new guest. So make sure to subscribe to Startup Stories so you never miss an episode. Also, don't forget to follow me on social media for updates and additional content. And if you have any suggestions for guests or topics you'd like to hear about, please reach out to me. And as always, I appreciate your support and feedback. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.